You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Good evening. We will be in Colossians 3. This will be verses 9 through 17. Starting with verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. I want to echo Ryan's welcome to you if you're visiting with us. Honored that you are here. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be up front here and would love to say hello to you. Um, Tonight, we're going to take a brief pause in our series in Romans and observe something that we do annually here, uh, particularly around Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, which was last weekend, and look at an issue that um, is actually really important to us here at Mercy View, and it's the issue of racial harmony. Uh, The elders... Uh, have determined that this is something that we want to talk about annually here at Mercy View. If if not more than that, at least take a weekend to talk together uh, during this time uh, about racial harmony. In particular, as you might be aware, if you are from Tulsa or have been here for some time, you know the issue of racial harmony has a very painful place in our own city's history. Just last year, the city uh, commemorated the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the uh, most violent uh, things to happen to a particular people group in any city in our country, in our country's history. And uh, I, I know that some of you are aware of that story, and we don't have time to get into that tonight other than to say that that is a stain on our city and the residue 
from that event, even though it was over 100 years ago, uh, still remains in our city. We, our own city is a microcosm of really what is an issue in our country still, and that is the inverse of, of what we would hope would happen, and that is racial disharmony. Um, now, I don't presume to think that one sermon tonight is going to solve all of the issues of racial disharmony that you are aware of, or maybe that you have even faced yourself. Uh, the challenges within our own city, within our society, are deep, they are long-standing, they are complex, they are complicated. And I'm also in a, in a sermon here tonight not trying to overly simplify a very difficult and complex issue. Man, and, and, and I just, I need to say this, like after having prepared this, uh, this sermon for this evening, some of you might feel that way. Some of you might feel like, Brad, look, you, it can't be that simple. And, and it never is that simple, but there is a message that Paul has for us here in Colossians 3 that does in some way bring not, I wouldn't call it a simplicity, but rather a focus to this conversation that we have to get. It's super important for us to get if we're going to contribute in a meaningful way as a church to racial harmony. And I'm sure when all is said and done tonight, uh, you know, some of you will find my sermon lacking, uh, you know, just in some way from your experience, your background or perception. You may not think maybe, you know, that I've dealt with things completely or even as fairly as, as you would have wanted to. But here is the deal. Um, I think that we should step out into this conversation with the risk that's involved so that maybe, just maybe by the Lord's grace, uh, we can have a, this, this conversation can have a ripple effect to understanding and deeper harmony for all people, for all cultures and races that are represented in our city. And God willing, the journey that we are on will pull us forward to greater racial diversity and greater racial harmony, even in our own church. So the question before us is, is this conversation about racial harmony a worthy one? Like, is it, is it something that really, if, if you were to be honest, you're kind of tired of? Or, or maybe apathetic about? Or, or maybe you are in the trenches and, and you are wanting to work towards this, but you're tired. Is racial harmony a fantasy? Will we ever see the racial divide in our own city and in our own country ever healed? Should you care about it? And if you're supposed to care, what responsibility do you have, do we have? If, if so, if there is a responsibility that you and I are to have, what is it? Does the Bible have anything to say to us about this? Tonight, as we look at the issue of racial harmony from Colossians 3, I just want to invite you to see one thing tonight. It's this. The gospel is the hope and the church is the catalyst for healing our cultural divisions. Let me just say it again. The gospel is the hope 
and the church is the catalyst for healing our cultural and racial divisions. If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, because we've not been in the book of Colossians, let me give you just a little bit of context as we jump into uh, this. In Colossians 1, uh, again, I said this earlier, the Apostle Paul is the writer of this letter. In Colossians 1, Paul um, gets lofty. He extols the centrality of Jesus in some of the most beautiful language in all of the Bible. Then as we move into Colossians 2, Paul begins to warn us about the kinds of things that do divide us and do distract us. And then he moves us into Colossians 3 and says, really, you need to be who you are in Christ. He does this in a variety of ways, but what Paul has really done through the first three chapters of Colossians is saying, since you've received Christ and since Christ has become your life, you should seek things that are above and then put to death things that um, are of the flesh. So in other words, as we move into Colossians 3, Paul sets the stage for how the gospel creates a different kind of person who then lives for a different purpose in the world that you've been placed in. And that brings us to our verses this evening, beginning around verse 9 and 10. So if you would look with me there. Notice what Paul says that we must do. He says that we must put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And what I want you to see in, in that verse is that Paul is pointing to the reality that every single person is made in the image of their creator, in the image of God. And so regardless of what your race is or what your socioeconomic status may be or what tribe that you say that you are a part of, the, the thing that is true about all of us that is actually more important than any of those particular categories is that you are an image bearer. And that also means this, not only are you an image bearer, but it means the person who is different than you who looks different than you, lives in a different part of town than, than you do, is in a different tribe than you, is also made in the image of God. And then notice the word here in verse 11, wrapped up in that one word, Paul is going to begin to point us to a different kind of culture that is the result of a different kind of person. And the way that Paul does this is he lists a number of what would have been at this time very understood and established cultural divisions. Look at those real quick. He lists four of them. The first one is ethnicity. He, he talks about the Greek and the Jew. And then the second category that, that he, he highlights is what we would call the religious uh, category or, or category of religion. He talks about the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And then he talks about the cultural uh, category, the barbarian and the Scythian, which that's a tough one, Lauren. I, I know. I, that, I had to look that up myself this week too, remind myself. And then lastly, the socioeconomic category of slave and free. See, these divisions that Paul is talking about may not mean a whole lot to us now because we don't necessarily have these kinds of distinctions or use these kinds of distinctions. But the reality is, is 
whether it's the distinction of ethnicity or religion or cultural distinctions or socioeconomic distinctions, these divisions represent what we would even have in our time today as generation-long distinctions between groups of people that are loaded with history and suffering and hostility. And here's what Paul wants you to see here. You may think that ethnic divisions and tribalism is somehow unique to our time. But Paul is saying, no, it, it was true in my culture too. And here's what that means. You, if you build it out, ethnic and racial conflicts aren't just a United States problem. It's a human problem. There are some that get frustrated, and, and, and I understand the frustration, but they think the conversation around racial harmony um, is, is kind of tired. Uh, they, they believe that there, some even believe there aren't racial issues at all, so like we don't need to talk about them, or that we wouldn't have a race problem if we wouldn't keep bringing it up. But I would suggest that, that racial issues, cultural divisions, are always going to be an issue within our culture because those divisions are a result of the brokenness, not only just in our country or our city, but in our, our hearts. Now, I want you to notice what Paul does. He takes all of those cultural and ethnic categories... And instead of highlighting those in, in, in a way to say, here's what's most important. You need to know what your ethnicity is and you need to know what your religious uh, beliefs are. You need to know what cultures you're a part of, what socioeconomic status. Those are the most in th um, important things about you. No, Paul doesn't do that. He points then to something that should be more foundational for a follower of Jesus. It's there at the end of verse 11. He says, but Christ is all in all. Now, some people get frustrated with this racial harmony conversation as well because this kind of sounds like Paul is doing the just preach the gospel thing, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that part of the conversation around racial harmony, but there are some who are like, hey, we need to talk less about racial disharmony and more about the gospel or only about the gospel. And some people get frustrated here with Paul. This sounds like Paul is saying, guys, just Christ is all in all. Let's, let's, let's focus on that. They feel like he's flattening the realities of ethnicities and races, but that's not what Paul is doing here. Look at what he says. He is trying to both acknowledge the reality of the challenges that exist between people that are different from one another, while at the same time trying to help us understand that those differences should never be ultimate. There's something else that Paul is wanting to say is ultimate. What is that? Well, when Paul says that Christ should be all in all, he is saying that it is the gospel that can get underneath our splintered categories and unite people from all walks of life into one body. Like he's saying it's possible 
if Christ is all in all in you to unite what was once splintered relationally. Paul actually says it this way in another book that he wrote in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, when he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, Paul is not trying to flatten those categories, those realities that were true about the Jew or the Greek, slave or free. He's just wanting to say, look, there is something at the same time that if you will see is more important or more ultimate than how, you know, what religion or culture or ethnicity you might come from, that will actually move you towards one another. And in this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is saying that the Greek and the Jew and the slave and the free are united in a way that is countercultural. Let me say it this way. The hope of the gospel is that you see more than what culture tries to make ultimate. Like the color of a person's skin, their socioeconomic status, or what group of people they're a part of. Again, not saying that those things aren't important at all, but the hope of the gospel is that you first see a brother or sister in Christ, or you see a brother or sister made in the image of God before you see their color or socioeconomic status or tribe. Now, this is why this conversation is challenging, because in order to say what Paul is saying here, that Christ is all in all, or we are one spirit, regardless of these categories that we may find ourselves in, it may feel like Paul is saying that those categories are unimportant. Paul is not doing that. Paul is just trying to help us see that, that the hope of the gospel is that first you see a brother or sister in Christ or someone made in the image of God before you see them as a particular in a, you know, status or, or group of, of, of people. Now, if you would look with me at the beginning there in verse 12. After reminding us that it is Christ that is the ultimate grid for how we should see one another, he begins to talk about the implications of that gospel. The gospel has always intended to change the way that you and I live. The gospel has consequences. The gospel is one thing, but it does more than one thing. And it, it should change the way that we live. Look what Paul says here. Paul calls believers to put on certain qualities. Now, the nuance of that phrase, put on, uh, it, it's more than just a command that he expects believers to follow. The phrase put on suggests that you have been so transformed by the gospel that you now have a motivation and a resolve that leads to new behaviors and new attitudes. You could think of it as Paul saying to us, be who you are. By the way, this is one of the most important things for a Christian to, I think, understand, but it's one of the most difficult things for us to understand and, and really practice. If the gospel has transformed you, you are a new creation. The old has gone. And because of that, we are to put on the new. That is why Paul straight away talks about our spiritual position there in 
verse 12. Again, Paul is pressing the point that underneath the things that may separate us horizontally, there are enormously indispensable vertical realities that are utmost in our lives. Look what he says there. He says we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those are some God-centered ideas. God is the one who chose you. He is the one through Christ who has made you holy. And he is the one who loves you. You are beloved by him. These are the categories underneath the Christian. And those categories, when multiple Christians get together in a church, create a culture that transcends the culture that's out there. All right? It's a Christian kingdom reality within the kingdom of the larger world. So what does this gospel-saturated counterculture look like? Well, let's look quickly at how Paul describes the implications of the gospel. First, he says it brings about compassionate hearts. What a phrase. The word means a deep regard for one another. It means that you feel uh, sympathy towards another. Next is kindness. It's a, another way to be to say to be generous. It means treating people with a graciousness that may even go beyond what they deserve. Next is humility. This word means that we know our position in life in light of God's grace and his mercy to us. It's the opposite of pride, right? It's the opposite of self-centeredness. Next is meekness. This is obviously a close cousin to humility. The best definition that I know for meekness is power under control. That's really interesting, right? It doesn't discount the, the reality of power for good, but it's power for good that is under control. And it might mean the willingness to be deferential to someone and to listen to someone well and maybe not even react when you're misunderstood. Next is patience, right? This means to put up with a, you know, someone that's maybe frustrating you or, or being able to not fly into rage or desire to get even with someone else. The old King James usually translates this word as long-suffering. Maybe you've heard that word. Next is bearing with one another and forgiving each other. These are different ideas, but they really go together because it means putting up with one another giving each other lots of room to, to, to grow, um, having a predisposition towards reconciling where you can. And then lastly, love, right? Now this is above all that Paul says here, all the previous behaviors in a sense, because it binds all of these things together as the greatest of all Christian virtues. Love is the mark by which the world would know that we are Jesus' disciples, so if you put all of these qualities of a new creation, which that's what you are if you're a Christian, together, you begin to start to see there is this picture of how you and I are to live, and the way that we're living actually is extremely countercultural to the wider culture that you and I find ourselves in. These attitudes that Paul just walked through are in direct opposition to how our society thinks about and and acts in relationships. Culturally, our society works on all the inverses of all this, suspicion and mistrust and, and unforgiveness, but the gospel motivates a completely different way of living. And as we think about the issue of racial harmony, 
Here, even in this passage, I think we begin to see how these countercultural qualities are meant to be in the relationships that you and I have restorative. They, they contribute to restoration. How can they not? All right? Despite our differences, despite our divisions, this, this uh, way of living is what gospel-saturated people look like and gospel-saturated churches look like. The question for us is, in the midst of a culture that's filled with disunity, filled with conflict, is your first step in relationships marked by a compassionate heart or kindness or humility or meekness or patience? And more specifically, as we think about racial harmony, are you quick to fall into the ditch of either race blindness, which race like race should never be an issue, or race baiting? Race is always the issue. See, part of the problem as we come to the topic of racial harmony is that we often come to it and our, our first step is, is a lack of compassion, an unwillingness to hear and listen well, and, and, and a quickness to speak, right? Why is that? Well, again, it's not even necessarily a, it's not a racial issue, it's a human heart issue. No matter what your ethnicity might be, no matter what your socioeconomic status might be, no matter what tribe you may find yourself in, a follower of Jesus is called to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, to be patient. And the way that we do that is through Christ, because Christ is in us. Christ is all in all. It's actually because of that you and I can begin to see one another differently. And we can watch the news differently. And we can engage with the issue of racial harmony differently. I, I hope, my prayer is that even in a place like Mercy View, if there is a majority culture when it comes to ethnicity, and we find other minority cultures within our own church, that what ends up happening is all that stuff meets together in a gospel culture where what's most important about us and where we identify with each other most of all is our union in Christ. There's more. Paul does say here in verse 15 that there is a hope for the future of this kind of gospel community. And notice that Paul talks about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. So when we talk about the issue of racial harmony, when we, we tend to be talking about this idea that we're struggling for it, right? There, there isn't a lot of it or we, we're, we're wrestling for it. There's disunity, right? There's conflict, there's division. But Paul says that there is a way that the peace of Christ can so govern our hearts that it affects our relationships with other people who are different than us. Look there, it's in the second half of verse 15. It happens first when we see that we're called into one body, right? Again, in other words, our differences are secondary. Our spiritual union is primary. But second, Paul says, be thankful. See, thankfulness is one of the greatest antidotes to division. Thankfulness reorients us towards what is good and, and what is true. Obviously, our salvation and our unity in Christ, our hope for a redeemed future are those kinds of, of things. But for us to be grateful and be thankful for those things reorients us. 
But there's more. Look at verse 16. Another way that this peace can positively control our community is when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Paul's point here is that when we let the word of Christ dwell in us, live and inhabit us, uh, it becomes the source for how we think and what we do. And the gospel ultimately is what comes out of the word uh, of God for us. And it begins to produce a different kind of person. It's the word that helps us understand our identity underneath all other categories. It's the Bible that helps us learn how to lead with love. It's the word that convicts us when our selfishness and our pride keeps us from working towards unity with those that are different, uh, different than us. See, friends, the, the problem between us, the problems between us, the tension in our city, the tensions in our nation, the deep misunderstandings we have, around the issue of race are not easily solved. But as Christians, when the gospel rules our hearts and our lives, there is a hope that we have for a, yes, imperfect, but compelling community of grace, of kindness, and of love, where different kinds of people come together into one gospel culture. This is a reality, friends, that Paul is saying can come through the lives of a community that is being transformed by the gospel. There is a dynamic in play that Paul even begins to talk about here that happens when we come together to do what we're doing tonight. He says, admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God. It means that when you and I gather together to acknowledge and to remind and to celebrate the gospel, that begins to get in underneath every category that you and I might find ourselves identifying with. So that we can begin to see and work on what is most important and begin to find the reconciliation we so desire. And then Paul closes here. He says, no matter what we do, in every arena of life, everything that we do as followers of Jesus should be marked by the name of Jesus. In other words, how we talk to one another, how we listen to one another, how we care for one another, how we weep with one another is to be marked not primarily by our group, but by the name of Jesus. So this is our question tonight. Is that true of you? Is that true of our church? Here's the big idea I want you to see tonight. The gospel is the hope and the church is the catalyst for healing our racial divisions. It is the good news of Jesus that changes the focus and direction of our hearts towards what is ultimate. And it is you and I that if we will step into the mess of it all, can work towards creating a counter-cultural place of refuge from the cultural brokenness of racial division. And in turn, see supernatural unity witness to the larger culture about Jesus himself. Friends, that's the vision of this passage. I hope it's something that you desire to embrace and I hope that you will be a part of making this church a beautiful a beautiful representation week after week of the beauty of Christ 
that we could say here at Mercy View, because of Jesus in this place right here, there is neither black or white, Asian or Latino, police officer or protester, but Christ is all and in all. Jesus has made it possible to overcome our deepest divisions by making peace with his blood through his cross. So will you join us in this peace journey? Jesus is with us. Let's join him in the work that he desires to do among us and through us, through the gospel, so that we can be a church that is a catalyst for healing the cultural and racial divisions in our city and our country. Let's pray together.